There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host. We're joined today by Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Senator Murphy has served Connecticut for the past 10 years, uh, and among his other assignments. He is on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he is chair of the Committee on the Middle East. And that's where we begin our discussion. Uh, how are you today, Senator Murphy? I'm great. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on. I'm uh, in the middle of uh, shuttling children to and from activities, so not in my normal Senate outfit, but uh, great to be with you. Um, well, it's very, very nice of you to take some time from all of that. Um, As we record this, it's the morning after President Biden gave a speech in which he um, spoke uh, eloquently, I thought, about the need for the United States to provide support both for Ukraine and for uh, Israel. And so I think perhaps where I should start is your reaction to his remarks. Well, I thought it was important for the president to go on national TV and talk to the country about these crises in Ukraine and in Israel. This is a moment of global chaos. It's a dissettling moment for Americans uh, and for people all over the world. And, you know, when a president goes on TV, um, you know, he is making a specific case here. He is trying to convince the American public that it is worth their taxpayer dollars to help defend Ukraine and Israel. But he is also trying to make sense of the moment, right? Trying to help people understand why these terrible things happen um, and how we should deal and process them. Uh, So his frame America's obligation to defend democracies as a way to protect our own democracy is, I think, a really important um, paradigm for for people to sort of view this these crises through. But then you know, the portion of his speech where he talked about um, the temptation to turn on each other, um, the temptation to you know decide to huddle in our corner and see others as the enemy, um, uh, and to um, and to really. Um, you know, force ourselves to push back against that instinct was an important part of the speech as well. So I thought, you know, expectedly he did a, a great job. And I uh, hope that my colleagues um, will have more support from their constituents as we move forward on trying to pass this supplemental security package. 
Um, well, I'll get a little more granular on that in a moment, but let's let's take a step back and look at this from uh, a, the kind of uh, overview level that he touched on. He he quoted Madeleine Albright. He talked about America as the indispensable nation. And it seems to me this is kind of a concept we've been struggling with for most of this century. Uh, you had the overreach of the Bush administration, um, uh, the either you're with us or against us, unilateralist approach of the Bush administration. Uh, I think the Biden, uh, the Obama administration was a little reactive to that. Um, and, and by the Trump administration, you were at America first and kind of a walled community view of U.S. foreign policy. Biden is returning to a more traditional view, which is that the U.S. has to play a role in these critical fights against terrorism, um, against aggression by autocrats, uh, for um, in support of uh, international law. Uh, and I'm wondering what your view is of that, of the idea that the role America played for most of the Cold War, the role at least we saw ourselves playing, um, of a central actor on most of the big issues on the global stage is one you feel comfortable with us returning to. Well, I do. Uh, I agree with President Biden that we remain an indispensable nation. This is not the Cold War. Power looks much more multipolar today than it did decades ago. The contestants for global and regional hegemony um, are more powerful, non-state actors um, have a lot more to say about regional uh, stability, but the United States remains as the one nation um, that is committed to both participatory government, human rights, um, but also open and free economies uh, that can help defend our partners in that mission. Um, I think Joe Biden, as President Obama understands the limits of U.S. military power um, and that when we insert ourselves and our personnel into strange, unfamiliar places, we often end up doing more damage than good. And so partnership, uh, I think, is much more important. So that's why you see President Biden very willing to partner with the Ukrainians, very willing to help fund Israel's defense, but you know, not coming to the American people and saying that we're going to send your kids, your children uh, overseas. Um, the president also understands the importance of economic and diplomatic partnership um, and, 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 and is willing to take the risks necessary in order to extend the reach of American diplomatic and economic power. And so you saw um, just over the last few days, the president announced a breakthrough agreement in Venezuela, where Venezuela may be on the path back to uh, elections. And it was U.S. sanctions and U.S. diplomacy that made that possible. So the president's a believer in diplomacy. He's a believer in the United States playing a security role around the world. But I do think that he has, you know, very clearly learned those lessons that you talk about from the Bush administration about the limits of direct application of U.S. military power. Um, there are also risks to direct applications of U.S. power. We've now got two uh, carrier battle groups uh, in or around uh, uh, the, the the region um, in the Middle East where. Uh, Israel looks as though it's about to go into Gaza. Um, one American ship, um, USS uh, Kearney, I think it was yesterday, uh, intercepted uh, several missiles that seem to have uh, come from uh, the Houthis in Yemen, uh, probably cruise missiles supplied by Iran. 
uh, en route to Israel. Um, and I think it, 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 it may raise alarms in the, idea, in the eyes of, of some observers in the United States um, that our own troops are at risk, uh, that we may be drawn into an escalating conflict in the Middle East. How do you view that? To what extent are you concerned about that? Well, I have long been concerned about the exposure of our forces in the Middle East. And, and David, as, as you know, because you've helped sort of amplify some of my messages on this topic, uh, I have believed that we would be better off desecuritizing our presence in the Middle East, downsizing uh, the number of troops we have there. We sort of take it um, as a matter of faith that the only way to protect U.S. interests in the Middle East is to have 10,000 plus troops there spread out between a number of countries. Um, in fact, this is a fairly new normal. Uh, in the 1980s, for instance, we had very few troops permanently stationed in the Middle East, and we were able to protect our interests there just the same. Many of those troops are very exposed, uh, in particular, our forces in Syria uh, and Iraq. Um, and we have a you know, a, a now an increased presence there with these two carrier battle groups, as you mentioned, in part because we know that we are not able to adequately force protect our troops on the ground, and they become targets at moments of crisis for non-state actors or even state actors like Iran. So this is, to me, evidence of why um, we should be securing our interests in the Middle East with a, a smaller number of permanently based forces. Uh, we do not want to get drawn into a conflict with Hezbollah directly or certainly with Iran, um, but having so many troops positioned in vulnerable places uh, ultimately makes a, a potential bigger conflict uh, a higher likelihood. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm a little resistant to offer up Godfather references because they come up too often in, in almost all discussions. But, you know, I, when I look at the situation in the Middle East, I, I can't help but think of the Michael Corleone scene where he says, just when I think I'm out, it pulls me back in again. You know, and here we are, the, the president pulls out of Afghanistan, says we're pivoting to Indochina, uh, starts, I mean, sorry, the Indo-Pacific starts to address um, uh, another uh, big challenge uh, in Europe with Ukraine. Uh, and here we are with some of the, you know, most difficult problems that we've ever faced in the Middle East blowing up again. Um, uh, and, you know, the complexity of that, I think, is revealed by the president's trip where he seemed to have several messages, but one of them was support for Israel in the wake of the horrific attacks of October 7th. But another was, let's try to contain this, work within the bounds of international law, keep humanitarian issues at mind, uh, and, and this may be the hardest of them all, keep our eye on what the solution may be. Because it looks right now like the Israelis, and they will acknowledge it themselves, don't have a plan beyond going into Gaza. Uh, and if this is going to ever produce um, anything like a sustainable peace in the region, you need some kind of uh, political mechanism. And if you're going to take out Hamas, it becomes that much more difficult. How do you how do you view that problem? 
Yeah, well, I think there's a few things to un- unpack there, uh, David. You know, one is, um, you know, this 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 very real phenomenon of not being able to separate ourselves from the Middle East as the place where uh, the lion's share of our military and diplomatic attention gets spent. Um, and so you, you do have to really think through that problem. Um, of course, at the heart of our uh, focus on the Middle East is our continued dependence on the oil that's produced there. And so um, our efforts to make our country energy independent um, are probably the most I- important work we have uh, to make sure that we don't have to pay as much attention to the Middle East as we have. I have also argued that this this question of you know who ultimately wins the contest for regional power between Iran and Saudi Arabia is um, not a question that necessitates the U.S. daily direct involvement. I thought getting involved in the Yemen war was an absolute mistake, um, and uh, I wouldn't repeat it. But the one interest that I think will always remain in the Middle East uh, is our support for Israel and the survival of the Jewish state in the Middle East. Um, I would argue that we should get out of the business of caring so much about the Saudi versus Iran dynamic, but I don't argue that we should back away from our support for Israel and our decision over and over again to back them up when their survival is uh, threatened. So I think that's an important um, uh, staying value in the region. Um, On the second point, what is the uh, end game of the Israeli operation? A really important question. I agree with you. My sense is that the Israelis have not decided that question. And in fact, they have made statements as such uh, saying that, you know, what they are seeking to do is defeat Hamas and then they'll figure out what comes next. I think that's a mistake. I don't think your war planning is done unless you have uh, a clear sense of what the final outcome is in the region. And uh, I went to the Senate floor two days ago to to give a speech raising those questions. Um, uh, If you think that, you know, the best future outcome for Gaza is permanent Israeli occupation. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's a mistake. If you th- have some fantasy in which you think the Palestinian Authority is going to come into Gaza and be a legitimate um, steward of the government, I think that's a fantasy. Um, leaving Hamas in charge, obviously that's um, completely unpalatable to uh, the Israeli public today, but there is not another viable plan. And I don't think that you should move forward with a full-scale ground invasion until you have a clear theory of the case uh, as to who runs Gaza at the end of active military operations. Yeah. You know, one of the other things, you know, for the past several years, I've had many, many conversations about the Middle East, as I'm sure you have. And we probably encountered many of the same smart people who said, you know, the two-state solution is dead. That's just not going to happen. Um, and frankly, I think that suited certain political groups in Israel and in the United States. Um, uh, but interestingly, within the past um, couple of weeks since this attack, we've heard the Egyptians say they want to convene uh, a peace talk that, that, that it has a two-state solution as one of the goals. We've heard MBS in Saudi Arabia, not that he's a great arbiter of justice in the region. Uh, say that a two-state solution is the only way to go. Uh, and I think most notably, we've heard the president of the United States say a two-state solution is the only way to go. Um, there is, to me, some logic to that. 
you know, the Palestinians deserve the right of self-determination and security, just as the Israelis do. What's your view? It's the only path forward. And I think we are um, very painfully reminded of that reality uh, in the days since October 7th. Um, it is not dead. It is still absolutely viable. Uh, and to my mind, the only way to secure a permanent Jewish state in the Middle East, because if you're not giving Palestinians a future state, then you only have two options. One is to give Palestinians full voting rights. And ultimately, that means you don't have a Jewish state in the Middle East. That would be a majority Arab state um, uh, within our lifetime. Or you have a permanent apartheid state, which is, uh, I would hope, equally unacceptable to our democratic ally, uh, Israel. But yes, I think you are right. I think everyone in the region, including the Sunni states, uh, including the Palestinians' regional allies, had basically given up uh, and had sort of bought this narrative that um, it was impossible or that by simply um, bludgeoning the Palestinians, uh, taking away their rights, um, confining them in Gaza, eventually they would give up on their desire for their own country. Um, that is not how this is going to play out. Uh, and so I hope that the United States uh, commits itself to spending more energy to press for a path to a Palestinian state. Uh, as you probably know, um, right before this crisis broke out, Chris Van Hollen and myself um, organized 20 senators to say to the president, if you are going to help broker a normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, that deal has to include a commitment from Israel to get back on that path towards a Palestinian state. But I also think the Palestinians' regional allies have to get much more serious about this. Listen, MBS has not been working the phones trying to secure a Palestinian state. Egypt um, has not been making it a priority. Um, everyone has you know, essentially left the Palestinians out to dry. And the only way when this crisis passes, when this crisis passes, that we get back to uh, a, a, a viable route to a Palestinian country is if we are working together with other uh, Muslim and Arab nations in the region. Yeah, you know, I think that's a, a really critical point. Clearly, in the weeks immediately before this attack, we seem to be moving um, from my perspective, a little mysteriously quickly, towards a Saudi-Israeli deal, uh, in which both the Saudis and the Israelis seem pretty willing to let the Palestinian issue slide. That's consistent with some of these other normalization moves in the past few years. Um, and, um, you know, it looked like the, the Netanyahu narrative, that the Palestinian issue was always secondary, um, was going to be embraced. Clearly, that's no longer possible. The demonstrations across the the Arab world, uh, the, the 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 likely consequences of some protracted engagement uh, in Gaza puts the Palestinian issue right back at the center of things. And I think one other factor in all of this, and I'd be particularly interested in your view on this, is I've seen some recent opinion polls in the United States, and particularly with younger voters, there is a sense that humanitarian assistance and support for the Palestinians is every bit as important as providing support for Israel. And in fact, in some cases, it's more important um, uh, in, in terms of the way these polls come out. 
is this issue back at the center now? And, you know, what is the role the U.S. can play in moving it forward? Well, listen, I, I, I don't think we know yet whether it is back at the center of American politics and American foreign policy. Uh, we have to help Israel get through this crisis. But my sense is that once this crisis passes, the um, immediacy of returning to a pathway to a Palestinian state will be absolutely clear. Um, what can the United States do uh, about this? Well, listen, of course, we um, are the biggest donor to Israel, the biggest supporter of their military. Um, you know, President Obama, you know, obviously caused great friction um, in his relationship with Benjamin Netanyahu by, um, you know, pressing them hard to make commitments to the Palestinians. Uh, President Biden early in his administration um, did not press as uh, hard in part because I think he was, you know, very supportive of the coalition government that replaced Netanyahu and didn't want to break apart that coalition by infusing into it debates about uh, about the Palestinian territory. Um, I just don't think there is now any option other than to um, press Israel to make some of these commitments that are necessary. And, you know, this doesn't all happen at once. Obviously, you know, the first uh, thing Israel needs to do is is do no harm to a future Palestinian state. And so that means um, stop legalizing these outposts, these illegal outposts of Israeli settlers inside uh, what is what we all agree to be future territory in a Palestinian state and to stop the settlements. Um, and these were the things that I, that I and Senator Van Hollen and 18 other senators said should be the conditions that the United States and Saudi Arabia apply to any normalization deal. Uh, and I still believe that those need to be um, priorities for the United States. Uh, I think they will likely be higher priorities for the Israeli government when this is all said and done. Obviously, part of this question is dependent on what is the coalition that runs uh, Israel after this crisis. My sense is that there is a lot of anger at Netanyahu um, you know, over both the conflict, uh, the path to the conflict, and the democracy crisis. But that doesn't guarantee there will be a pro-Palestinian state coalition that replaces his coalition. Um, that'll be a question for the Israeli people. Yeah, no, the recent polls in Israel have suggested uh, 80% of Israelis blame Netanyahu for the conditions that led to the attacks. Uh, clearly, he's in a difficult, difficult place. Uh, one final question on this. Well, an Israeli friend of mine described the Biden trip to Israel um, as uh, you know, the p- supporting the idea that you should hold your friends close um, and your allies you don't quite trust even closer. Um, and I, I think his point was that there is a concern in the U.S. government that an Israeli government, in the heat of a moment, led by a man who seems to have a limited political future, with a government that contains a number of extremists, could go into Gaza, produce a long war produce a lot of civilian casualties as part of that, uh, and inflame the situation throughout the region in the course of doing that. What power does the United States have to avoid that kind of outcome, and how actively should we apply that power? Well, first, there there is a visual element to leadership, and uh, President Biden understands that. 
so um, it's important for the president to stand in a in a physical right way with uh, the Israeli leadership at this moment. That's not just a signal to Hamas and non-state actors who you know, might be thinking about attacking the United States in the future. It's also a signal to China and Russia that at this uh, moment, it's the United States that's on the ground in the region, not uh, Russia or China. Um, but I do believe that part of the reason for the trip was President Biden's belief that he needed to sit down one-on-one behind closed doors and look Prime Minister Netanyahu and his war cabinet in the eye uh, and talk about the need to balance fury um, with smart strategy uh, and the consequence of being careless about human lives in Gaza is to provide fuel to Hamas. We learned that killing a lot of terrorists uh, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq often just creates more terrorists, but also you know, to, to understand the risk of a second front opening up. Uh, and that second front could be waged directly against Israel, but it also could be waged against the United States as well. So we have a direct interest in making sure that the conduct of this war in Gaza comports with the rules of war. And I don't know that it has thus far because the backlash will come first against Israel, but it could also come to the United States because we are funding uh, this operation. So we have a very clear interest in making sure that the smallest number of civilians are killed. Uh, And I think that was a message that the president needed to deliver in person, in private to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Yeah, no question. And in fact, uh, in the demonstrations that have taken place across the Middle East in the past several days, uh, uh, one common thread has been that the demonstrators have equated the United States and Israel. They've seen the U.S. quick support here and said these, these countries are the same. Uh, and that that cuts both ways, of course. Uh, the final question I have for you is, President asked for um, a big commitment from the United States Congress um, to support Ukraine, the, to which the bulk of the commitment would go, uh, as well as um, Israel. What's your prognosis, particularly given that there seems to be an out-of-order sign hanging from the door of the House of Representatives. Um, Well, this is a really dangerous moment. We don't have a functioning House of Representatives. Uh, We um, cannot pass an aid package for Ukraine and for uh, Israel without it. Um, This is a real show of weakness to the world, uh, the chaos that we're watching in the House. Um, We have a bipartisan majority in both the House and the Senate to pass Ukraine and Israel aid. It is appropriate for those two to be packaged together because we do have uh, have bipartisan majorities in favor of uh, each aid package. And, you know, we don't have unlimited time. Um, So let's pass them together. Uh, Let's get it done. I think the Senate will move pretty quickly. Um, One of my worries, uh, in addition to the dysfunction of the Senate, is that Republicans, uh, the dysfunction of the House, is that Senate Republicans may insist that there be domestic policy issues dealt with on this emergency national security supplemental, like immigration reform. I would love to pass comprehensive immigration reform. I don't think that we should hold up aid to Israel or Ukraine uh, over that question. We haven't been able to pass comprehensive immigration reform in 50 years. There's not a lot of reason to believe that we'll be able to do it in the coming days. So there are a lot of hurdles and barriers before we pass this uh, emergency aid, uh, and um, and yet we don't have time to, to lose. 
Well, Senator, I know you've got a busy day, and we are very grateful that you took as much time as you did with us. Uh, hopefully, we will be able to coax you back to join us again in the future. We always learn a lot from these conversations. Uh, for now, thank you, Senator Chris Murphy. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and bye-bye.